Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What the people in this country want to say here is politics. Politics. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Slow Politics from Tortoise. I'm Matt Dancona. Centrism used to be such a nice word, or at least it was if it wasn't deployed pejoratively, as it generally is now in politics, applied to those who can't make up their mind or smugly try to split the difference between true convictions of left and right. In the tribal, polarised, populist world of modern Westminster, one of the worst things you can be called these days is a centrist dad. And I should know. So, in yet another week of parliamentary sex scandal and Tory leadership murmurings, it was quite something to discover a grand festival of centrism and centre-ground ideas under the banner Future of Britain, being hosted in Westminster by none other than the centrist daddy of them all, Tony Blair. The lineup resembled a Glastonbury of centre-ground grandees from across the political divide, ex-Conservative Rory Stewart, former Tory Cabinet Minister David Gork and ex-leader of the Scottish Conservatives Ruth Davidson alongside the Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary Peter Kyle and Polly Mackenzie, who was Policy Director under Lib Dem Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg. And from around the world, former US Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and Larry Summers, who was Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton. Not to mention giants of the tech world like Kaifu Lee and health pioneers such as Lord Darcy. There were goodie bags, nice coffee and herbal teas and fast Wi-Fi for the delegates. But what did it all add up to? On the day after the conference, I met Blair at his busy office in central London and asked him why he was so certain that there was a public appetite for centrist ideas. Why, in his view, the crisis of centrism is a crisis of supply, not of demand. It's my belief based on the evidence that I think where it is on on, on supply, uh, a strong centrist politics, it usually does win. I mean, it, it won in France. It you know, won in Germany, effectively. Uh, I think that the reason why Joe Biden got elected in America was because people thought at least he would be someone bringing the country together from the centre and that... that uh, the divisiveness of the Trump period needed to be put behind them. So I and I also but think it's that not on the march, is it? In the way that when you when you became prime minister, there was a feeling around the world post Cold War that centrism, Clinton, yourself, Schroeder, others, you know, you were all you were all part of a movement in which centrism really had kineticism and energy. Yeah, but I think it could get that again, and it right. has to. I mean, look. If, if you look at the problems of the world today, they're essentially problems that require understanding of the world, 
and practical solutions. And we've got into the position of thinking that centrism is boring and splitting the difference between left and right, and that the really exciting politics is, is, is the really extreme politics. So on the right, you know, ultra-nationalistic, you know, anti-immigration, culture wars. On the left, a sort of nostalgic attachment to the more power the state has, you know, the more just the society. And when you think of it, it really is a 20th century politics. It's got absolutely nothing to say about the way the world's changing today. It doesn't attempt to engage, for example, with the technology revolution and, and how that's going to transform everything. And you've got to understand that. And so for me, a, a vital center, it's the place where politics in the West has got to be. Where I agree completely is it's under attack and it's been under attack for uh, many years. But you look at the effect in Britain of having allowed Nigel Farage effectively to push the Tory party into being a Brexit party and Jeremy Corbyn to take over the Labour Party. I mean, the result for Britain has been dire. I mean, in that decade, we, we lost our way. We ended up doing Brexit. I mean, okay, it's done, but frankly, look at the problems that you see virtually every day today as a result of it. We've spent six years as a country diverted by it in circumstances where the world has been moving on fast. And now look at us, next year we've got the lowest growth in any G20 country other than Russia. Productivity is stagnating in a way it hasn't done for generations. So my view, I completely agree that the centre has been under attack, but what we need is to revive it and make it the place of sensible radical change. Okay, so what lessons, if any, do you draw from 2016 and its aftermath and what it represented? Because there was an assertion of culture and identity and nationalism. Um, so do you assume these are aberrations or pathologies or byproducts of other issues? Or might there not be lessons in there, in and of themselves, that centrists have to, in some way, uh, adapt to and adopt? Well, adapt to, for, for, for sure. And, and this is where I will say to people, populism, it exploits grievance, but it doesn't create it. You know, if you've got stagnant wages, if you've got genuine anxieties about immigration or law and order, um, or the way communities are some, in some parts of the country are falling behind, those are genuine grievances or anxieties. My point has always been that the centre's got to deal with those, because if you don't deal with them, other people will exploit them. That's why one of the things my institute's doing is putting forward policy in the healthcare, in education. We've got a paper coming out in asylum and immigration. <clears throat> in other words, dealing with difficult issues where, yes, you know, the populace will try and exploit those and cause division, but you've got to have an answer. If you have an answer, you're in a powerful position. So I, I think, yeah, no, of, of course, all the time you've got to reevaluate what you're doing. But just to go back to 2016, in my view, if the Labour Party had been properly led at the time, we wouldn't have done Brexit. I mean, you would have had a Labour leader with credibility who would have gone into those Labour areas and said, this is a Tory plot, a right-wing Tory plot. <laughs> Don't go anywhere near this. And they would have had the credibility to pull that enough of that Labour vote on side. Instead of which, you, you had a Labour leader that was, you know, for the bizarre old left reasons, basically probably pro-Brexit himself and certainly not capable of arguing credibility, the alternative case. So, you know, these things... The triumph of this populism hasn't happened by chance. It happened because, you know, we made bad choices. 
You said at the conference that you weren't a technocrat, I think anticipating one of the inevitable critiques. And you went on and said that the art of politics is to make these arguments sing. Now, that's a very striking point because we're living in an age when most arguments are shouted uh, on social media. Um, and most of those that try to sing aren't proving terribly good at it. So can you elaborate on the singing? I mean, because it seems to me that, that you're absolutely right. You have to get the technical detail right. And that's a huge project and it, it needs to be undertaken. And that's what the conference is all about. But what, what, what form does the singing take now as opposed to in the 90s, let's say? Yeah, I don't think it's very difficult. I think just before I come to the singing, just to emphasise this technocratic issue because it's you haven't done this in what you've just said actually but often people level this as a criticism you know they say oh well it's very technocratic you know in a, guys, in a pejorative way yeah, yeah. yeah yeah this guy's getting up and he's telling you about all this new technology and the treatments within the health service and blah blah but it's all technocratic it drives me mad this argument how can you ever change anything unless you understand its details so I don't even know what the word technocratic means in that sense. If it means <laughs> knowing, you know, when I get on a plane, I want to know the guy has done his bit at aviation school, right? I don't want the guy getting on the plane saying, look, I believe, I'm, let me fly the thing. No. <laughs> I think it's, well, I tell you what I think it is. I think it stands service for the idea that there are a group of experts in a sealed room who are coming up with ideas and then imposing them on other people. I think that's what it's come to mean. It, yes, it, it has come to mean that. But I don't think, by the way, that was ever particularly true. And it's obviously not true of the types of people who, for example, were at the conference. The guy giving the health service talk and the importance of technology is a practicing cancer surgeon within the NHS. So I, I, I think it's really important for people from the centre ground position to nail this technocratic thing, not to let it pass. But the moment someone makes that point is to say, don't be ridiculous. Of course you need to understand systems. Because by the way, the toughest thing about government, the thing you learn about government when you get in there is, and I, I you know, I, I, I'm real lived experience of this, is you realise the politics is the easy part. It honestly is. The hard part is governing. It's And governing, I, I remember about 18 months in and to, to my time as prime minister and, you know, the health service, had, you know, we put a bit more money, in, but it wasn't really, you know, working as well as we wanted. And I was really uh, upset about where we were going with it. And someone said to me, look, you should go out and make a, a speech about how much, you know, the health service means to you, how much you care about it. I just completely exploded. I said, I don't want to make another speech about how much I care about the health service. You measure how much you care by how much you're prepared to study it, get to the right answer and implement it. That's, that's caring. You know, caring is not just emoting. So I think the technocratic thing is important. How you make it sing then, I think it's not that hard. I mean, if you, you describe... It may not be hard for you, but it appears to be hard for quite a lot of people. Yeah, but what you say about the healthcare system is we've got the opportunity now through technology to move to a system that, that is all about making you healthy rather than simply treating you when you're sick. And I don't, I don't find that massively difficult. I think in education, I mean, we had a great presentation, again, from someone who actually 
used to work for me in Downing Street, but then started his own school, right? And now he's got a group of schools. So he's, he's doing it. <laughs> he's not just talking about it. And I thought he described brilliantly how the way the school system operates today with this f- narrow focus on narrow subjects, examinations, learning by rote, is just out of kilter with what we need from an education system today. Now, these things, I don't find them hard to make, to make sing. I think they're, they're actually quite inspiring. But you need to pull all this together with a confidence and a vigour that I think centrism has lost, partly because I think the combination of social media and a conventional media that's now very polarised, and it's one of the reasons why tortoise is important, right? Um, That has made people very defensive about centrism so that they, they, they feel uncomfortable standing up for it because... People describe them as an elite or, you know, you're basically an elite if you don't agree with these populace. It's just sort of, and you've got to be tough enough to take those arguments on and really, you know, take the argument to them. You said um, uh, a phrase that has a a, a nice ancestry, people want things that work. Um, And who could deny that? But, But they also want things that feel good nowadays, don't they? Now... Is that's contemporary politics? Is that a problem, or is that just a reality with which you have to deal as a centrist? I mean, people not always want to that, though. Yeah, but I mean, social media and the way that politics has, you know, turned out in the last twenty years just means that feeling is more important, I think, than it was. I mean, there was a feeling when you became prime minister. Was undoubtedly a feeling to it. There was an emotional content to it right but the emotional content to trump's victory and to brexit was way higher yeah i I think that yeah that there is there is some truth in that but it's it's partly because i think you know in difficult times and when you look at what's happened to wages in the developed world you do i think you do need to make a link between stagnant wages, living standards, and, and the growth of populism. I think when things are really difficult, unless you've got very strong leadership from what I would call the, the centre, the centre-left, centre-right, then those populist songs become very easy to, to, to take and, and, and to sing. So it's someone else's fault. You know, it's Europe's fault. It's the immigrants' fault. It's, you know, what, what, what Jeremy Corbyn used to say, you know, the system's rigged against us. You know, it's these things, these, I, I agree that in, when people can't see that there's a better future around the corner for them, then, then I agree they become, they, they do become much more attractive to people. And what is really fascinating because of the work my institute does around the world is I mean, we work in some of the poorest developing countries in the world. And when you do polling there, the figures on optimism for the future are significantly higher than they are in most Western countries. Significantly higher. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Labour wins when it owns the future. There's just no doubt about that, is there? I mean, 1945, 64, 66, 97. You know, it was, in all those cases, it was forward-facing. And it was answering the questions that were animating the voters. Um, and so the power of New Labour in 94, 97, it wasn't just intellectual or technical at all. It was that it flowed from a sense of, you know, a much-needed freshness and newness, and it had new people, and there was a sort of a laser-like focus on the future and everything you did. Now, so I know you're not launching a party, but you are launching an ideas movement. How does a movement today recapture that spirit, that, that it's not just a group of, of, of centrists that are familiar with each other gathering and, and kicking about ideas, that actually it is, it is genuinely attached to the, the, the issues that will be facing individual voters in the decades to come. Yeah, so I, I find this, really for the Labour Party, this should be incredibly easy. I mean, you've got a technology revolution that I say, and I think you know, most people would agree with, is the, is the 21st century equivalent of the 19th century industrial revolution. It's going to change everything. Um, <clears throat> AI, quantum computing, cloud computing, all of it's revolutionary, its implications for the public sector, for the private sector, for the way we live and work and interact with each other. So how you harness that technology revolution for the good, how you mitigate its problems, accesses opportunities. That's a huge future-oriented thing for Labour. Climate change, whether the, the answers are often to do with, with technology, but that's a great, what a great ambition for a progressive centre to have dealing with that. I think the biggest problem for Labour is to come to terms with its own history. I don't think it's really, where, where would it be if it was a modern progressive political party? I think that the agenda, if it was that party, is very obvious. The problem is the Labour Party lives in the shadow of its own history all the time. And if you look at the 120 year history of the Labour Party, and you're just being a brutal political analyst, in that 120 years, we've been in power roughly between a quarter of that time and a third. The only time we ever won two successive full terms was under New Labour. We've not been a successful political project. And that's because, in my view, we, at, the, in, at our birth, we attached ourselves, we became the political expression, parliamentary expression of the Labour movement, and the liberal progressive tradition that was represented by Lloyd George, by, by Beveridge and Keynes, they were outside of the Labour Party. So, you know, we talk about the welfare state as a great Labour Party creation, but two of its biggest architects were actually not members of the Labour Party. Now, what New Labour was, was an attempt to pull those two traditions together. And 
What really happened after I left is the Labour Party decided that was at odds with its Labour roots and really, it really, it went back. You know, I used to have this debate with people often after I left office and I would see people in the Labour Party and they would say, well, you know, Tony, that was, that was back then, 1997, we've really got to move on. I said, I agree, we're going to move on, but you guys are moving back. You're not moving on. And the problem that you've got today is Labour has got to be a different political party if it's to win. Now, Labour can be that, but when you ask the question and you do it again, just leave aside whatever your politics are. The last time Labour won as a traditional Labour Party, the last time it won a majority was well over half a century ago. Now, if you're in serious politics, that should tell you you've got a problem, right? Because during the same time, the Tories have won majority six times. So that's why I say to me, we won as new Labour in 1997, 2001, 2005. And that, is, that wasn't a marketing thing. It was an ideological attempt to pull together two traditions whose separation has given us that very poor record as a governing party. At the conference, um, former US Treasury Secretary uh, Larry Summers talked about the need for centrists to go on what he called the offence. And you yourself have been talking quite a lot about muscular centrism. What does that mean? I mean that you've got to work out where you really stand and then be confident about it and take confident positions. So to give you a very two very obvious examples. In my view, the Labour Party's got to have an answer on asylum and immigration. I think the best answer is to say we should go for a system, as countries doing around the world, a biometric ID. It allows you to know exactly who's got a right to be here, who hasn't. Okay, it's controversial, it'll be difficult with some people, but nonetheless, I think it's the way the world's going to move in technology terms, and it gives Labour a powerful thing to say. But Labour's got to have the confidence of doing it. And it's got to be able to say to its own people who say, oh, there's a terrible breach of civil liberties. No, we need an answer on this point. And that's a better answer than shipping people off to Africa and <laughs> breaking our international conventions. Second thing is over Brexit. Now, I completely, I was passionately opposed to Brexit, as you know. And for anyone who was passionately opposed to it, you've got to be careful the whole time because it, if you're not careful, it, it's, it's hard to reconcile um, if you believe it to be as deep a mistake as I believe it to have been. However, we know Labour can't go into an election saying it's going to reverse it. I think the country would just divert itself for another whole few years. You just There'll be a future generation that will make its decision about that. But in the meantime... We do have to accept there are problems with Brexit and we need to fix them and we can't be so lacking in confidence that we let the Tories away with what they've done. Because I can tell you, if the Labour Party had done something like this in government, <laughs> I promise you, the Tory party would never have led us away with it. I mean, just if you take the Northern Ireland Protocol, I mean, we were told it was an excellent deal at the time of the 2019 election, excellent deal that solved all the problems and everyone should get behind it. What we now know is that it wasn't an excellent deal. It was a very bad deal. It didn't solve the problems, but we know something else. That both Boris Johnson and that extraordinary guy they got negotiating it, David Frost, knew at the time it was a bad deal. <laughs> you can't let your opponents away with that. So I think 
you know, look at our trade figures. I mean, you made that point, but that doesn't, devaluation. doesn't the quality of politicians worry you? Quality in the sense of... Well, I mean, you just mentioned two people who do not inspire huge confidence, do they? Admittedly, no, but not, admittedly not in your party, but... No, exactly. So if you're in the Labour Party, you've got to have the confidence to get out after them. Now, I, I understand it's difficult, by the way, and I, I you know, I sympathise with the Labour Party, because when you've been through a really difficult period, you know, it, and this is why I really do sympathise with Keir and why I support, and why I support him, and I, and I genuinely do. I'm not just saying that because I, I think I've got to. He's taken on the Labour Party, you know, after a period where we just went so far in the wrong direction. It, it's, it's just hard to contemplate really how much damage that does because I can just tell you at every level he's having to recover um, seriousness you know re recover capacity and capability and he, he is doing that but in the end you know you're going to reach a situation I think at the next election where I think the country will feel that it, it would be good to have a change. You know, the Tories the Tories are in a bit of a state of nervous breakdown. And I think the public, you know, gets to the point where it says, okay, well, fair enough, you know, but you can go and have that on your time and not on our time. And so the Labour Party, I think, does have a real opportunity, but it's got to and this is this is the you know, I'm saying this sympathetically, it's it's got to accelerate so that it, it's clear when the people make that choice, they think, you know what, the Tories do deserve to be put out and I think we can safely put Labour in. And that, But you're asking someone who, for the first two years of his leadership, was uh, trying to be leader in lockdown, essentially, to be Neil Kinnock, John Smith and Tony Blair in two years. It's quite an ask, isn't it? Yeah, that's why I say I'm, I'm, I'm extremely sympathetic to him. On the other hand, the opportunity is there and politics moves at a faster pace today. And I don't, this is why I think it's all about policy for Labour. If, if I'm right, what, what, what happens when people go into the polling booth the next election? And that, this is why I think the next election will be as much about Labour as it is about the Tories, because I don't think the Tory campaign at the next election is going to be very elevated, right? It's going to be... Okay, you know, yeah, you may not like us. In fact, you may actually really not like us. But you let these other people in, and I tell you, you're going to have long Corbyn and all of the rest of it, and you're going to... No, you just can't take the risk. You've just got to, you've got to stick with, with us. That's what they're going to do. So Labour's just got to be in a position where it dismantles that argument. And yes, I know, you're asking a lot, and this is why I'm sympathetic to you. we are asking a lot of him. But he's got the chance with the policy agenda to make it absolutely clear, this is what we're about. This is one of the reasons we did the conference yesterday, to say, here, here is an agenda you can run with, and this is what we're not going to do. So we're not going to be spending our time turning the clock back, you know, renationalizing this, that, the next thing, you know, going back to all, all the stuff we were putting before people in 2019. No, all of that's out the window. What we're doing 
is we're creating a modern agenda for the country. We want people who may have voted Lib Dem, may have voted Tory to come and join us. It's a national mission. We need to put our country back on track. And, you know, I think, I think it's possible. I'm, I'm, I'm not minimizing the scale of the challenge, but I, I don't think we should minimize either what I think will be quite a powerful desire on the part of the people to have an alternative next time. One thing I just wanted to get your take on was um, Ukraine, which was, um, you know, you, you were elected as a very much on a domestic platform and through forces beyond your control, you became someone who was very deeply involved in geostrategy. What do you think are the lessons to date of Ukraine and the Ukraine conflict? I do think Ukraine upends a lot of the, the calculations people have made about how geopolitics would develop in the 21st century. I certainly didn't think it would ever be likely you would have a major power invade another country in this way. Um, peaceful country, edge of Europe, you know, democratic system, thinking it could invade it topple the president, take the country over, make it into a, um, a subservient state. So Putin's actions, I think, should reinvigorate the Western alliance, should obviously re reinvigorate NATO. Um, and I think all of the things that, that we have left off the agenda in the West in the past few years have got to go back on it again. How do we assert our influence how do we do it not just in hard power terms, but in soft power terms? In my institute, you know, working in Africa and out in Southeast Asia, I, I can just see in the last 10 years, 15 years, the West has just been absent, whilst other players have been piling into these continents and countries. So I think we've, it's a huge wake-up call for us. I mean, I think you've then got the more immediate problem of what you do about the conflict, but... But in terms of what it means for the Western Alliance, no, it's got to, it's, it's, it's got to make us think deeply and strategically. A few reflections on what he said. As ever, the former Prime Minister was articulate, thoughtful and confident. Still, many would argue, head and shoulders above every other British politician, more than 15 years since he left Number 10 on 27th of June 2007 which is good news for his new movement, which relies on his convening power and his continued public prominence. But those same qualities may be bad news for its prospects of practical success, as there are so few politicians in senior positions in 2022 who show much interest in ideas or in their translation into hard policy, or frankly have the talent to make complex realities sellable on the doorstep. I think, too, that Blair underestimates the extent to which the world has changed since 2016 and how much harder it is now than it was in 1997 to communicate practical political ideas to an electorate that has grown used to politics as a branch of entertainment, who are more sceptical than ever of the political system's ability to do anything, and who, as a consequence, are more susceptible to the blame game, to culture wars, and to performative stunts of 21st century populism. Still, he is dead right that there is an alarming dearth of radical and practical ideas in our politics today, and that to resign oneself to this would be both cowardly and a betrayal of what politics is really all about. 
It's why Tortoise has resumed its inquiry into the state of British democracy and will be hosting its own summit in our newsroom on the 7th of July. And not for nothing, one can't help but admire the energy of a 69-year-old still convinced that he can renew his brand of politics. As trumpet player Joey the Lips Fagan says to his struggling Irish soul band in the movie The Commitments, I believe in starts. Well, when many other ex-politicians are busy playing golf or appearing on reality TV shows, Blair is at least making yet another start. The question is, who will follow his lead? You've been listening to Slow Politics from Tortoise. I'm Matt Dancona. The producer is Imi Harper. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this special episode and want to hear more about British politics, why not become a member of Tortoise, where you can read my weekly column looking at the biggest issues in British and global politics and get access to more stories from our team of journalists. Just go to tortoisemedia.com friend and enter Matt50 to get a year's membership for £50.